0: Welcome to Social Evolution, a podcast where we talk about the future of humanity. I'm one of your co-hosts, Michael Porcelli. I'm Max Borders. And today we are going to be talking about consciousness. So, Max, I mean, what comes to mind when I think of consciousness? I mean, it's it's an interesting topic, but I sort of wonder why are we talking about that in the context of social evolution? Like, why does that matter for this particular podcast and what we're into here. What do you got to say about that?
1: For me, and I hope you agree. And uh, look, I I don't think this will be an episode dedicated Mm -hmm. to AI. I think we should definitely do an AI episode, artificial intelligence, but this episode in particular, uh, why, why consciousness? Uh, You know, there is this idea of the technological singularity, right? We're, we're programming computers to be more like humans in some way. And in fact, with uh, artificial intelligence, the idea is that someday computers will be as intelligent as human beings. And then on some dimensions, they already are more intelligent. They're faster. Uh, they can do more computations in certain narrow spheres. But at the end of the day, on a lot of different dimensions, the idea is that they're going to catch up with human beings. Well, what does that mean? That they're going to catch up from just a, uh, you know data processing or or not access to knowledge yeah. or or whatever. I mean, there's, there's so many dimensions there, but one in particular
0: hmm.
1: is has to be human consciousness. So the idea that it one day under the technological singularity, the humans the will wake up, yeah. or gain sentient. I'm sorry, the computers will wake up. The yeah, the machines will wake up. Um, it, it prompts us to ask a series of questions about human beings, you know, if, if, if they're waking up, what does it mean for a human to be awake as it were? What does it mean for a human being to be conscious? And I think that there is a more intimate connection between consciousness, particularly Mm -hmm. on what we'll discuss, which is phenomenal consciousness. Okay. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Um, that connection between phenomenal consciousness and thought or executing yeah. certain kinds of algorithms to get a certain kind of result. You know, if you want to use the language of, of computer science uh, with reference to thought, that may or may not be appropriate. So there's a whole suite of questions here, but some of them, at, at least most of them, connect back to this question of, what does it mean to be conscious? And what does consciousness mean? What is it?
0: Yeah. I think what's cool about what you're saying is it it sort of reminds me of, you know, science fiction themes and people who think about the future or where we could be going. You know, there's, there's a little bit of an element of like, almost like prophecy or prognostication in, in that literature. And also, you know, in recent decades, especially, you know, folks like Ray Kurzweil talking about the technological singularity and you Max, you got a book called the social singularity where in some sense, trying to not do sci-fi, but actually start to anticipate what's coming. And what, what's kind of cool about these stories is, or these, um, speculations about the future is they naturally entail philosophical questions that actually stretch all the way back to, you know, age old perennial things that we've. That philosophers have talked about for a very long time and it it sort of makes sense in in a way that these things are connected, right? Like what's the nature of right and wrong or good and evil or morality or ethics? And if we're going to be building this fancy civilization of the future, we're going to be building robots, well what are the ethical implications of that? And I know in my computer science department we talked about, you know, what does it mean to, you know, computer ethics and social issues. So it does come down to social issues. And one of those aspects is, you know, we're humans. We've got consciousness, or at least we think we do. And we've got minds and we've got intelligence. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I think I want to maybe kind of throw in a few things that come up for me, when we think about that, and maybe then we zoom in specifically on, you know, phenomenal consciousness and kind of the philosophical matter at hand. But, but I think if, if I think of like the, the thing you talked about, like, oh, what if robots or AIs become conscious just by virtue of the fact that they're achieving some complexity or sophistication or intelligence. And I think there's a, there's a differentiation between intelligence and consciousness, but oftentimes those questions arise together. Um, and you know, it actually arises when, when we reflect on ourselves and when philosophers, you know, from ages previous, were thinking about what it means to be conscious and thinking about the behavior of like animals or something, you know, are, are they conscious too? Do they have a lesser degree of consciousness? And so, and there's almost like, do they have a lesser degree of intelligence? Is it the same kind of intelligence that we have? And then when I think into the future, not only do I, wonder if robots and AI programs will become conscious, but like, what is it that we could build as our, you know, social fabric of the future where we maybe upload our brains or minds like in the matrix, or we're connected to some network and some super immersive artificial, you know, environment, like how, you know, Will we be conscious in those environments? How important is it that we remain conscious? If if we stopped being conscious in those environments, to somehow does something super important like disappear? Is it even possible for consciousness to disappear in that way? I don't know. But these are like what could happen if we build these future things, right?
1: I can't I can't get across how difficult it is to yeah. appreciate even asking those questions. Okay. Um for example, when you say, will we become less conscious or unconscious, uh, or is m- right. maybe not us, but these extensions of ourselves that we built or ha- or at least taught to self-replicate in some way and learn to self-create, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, maybe there is <clears throat> maybe there is some intimate metaphysical connection between uh, the neuromorphology of being a human being and the, you know, because it instantiates these ca- set of causal physical relationships and those in some deep metaphysical sense track with what we would call yeah. conscious properties or phenomenal properties that is a hard thing right there to first distinguish yes. in the mi- in people's minds because when you when you say would suddenly become unconscious you yeah. you might just imagine being hit over the head with a mallet and suddenly becoming unconscious and, and right. therefore yeah. not dead, but just not not awake in the sense of uh, being, you know, having some experience, the kind of ex- technicolor world uh, that that we have from the time we wake up in the morning yeah. to the time we go to bed at night and, and everything in between, right? So these, <clears throat> the subtlety of this conversation, um, it, it just requires a lot of unpacking to, to get right, get what we mean when we say these things. Um, so, you know, whether or not we'll get to the idea of, you know, a conscious universe or not Mm -hmm. in this episode, I hope we do, uh, depends on whether or not, you know, you and I between us can fully begin to appreciate both the mysteries in these questions, but also just parsing them in a way that we don't lose the concepts and that's a really hard thing to do
0: it is I'm, I'm excited to get into it this might be a little bit more academic or a little bit more even like max and porch share about their understanding of like you know the philosophy of mind and consciousness studies and these sorts of things and i think it was fun to discover you know back in the late 90s you know you were off in your world and i was in my world and you were in a philosophy department and i was in a philosophy department and like but there was a thing that was happening, which was like kind of a hot topic of that time, philosophy of mind. And, you know, authors like Daniel Dennett and David Chalmers and the Paul and Patricia Churchland and other people were really in this discussion of like, what does it mean? What is it? Like, what is consciousness and how can we talk about it as a, you know, an object of inquiry or maybe not an object, but a topic of inquiry of some kind. And, yes, <laughs> and that's what we're going to try to do here today, uh, exploring that. Um, why does it,
1: why does that matter though? I mean, this is one of the things that you're really trying to get out of me in the since the beginning here. Yeah, is yeah. Why does that matter? It's like if this was a hot topic back in the '90s and 2000s, and it's enjoying a resurgence, surely because it's a lagging indicator behind. Yeah. Uh, All this interest in artificial intelligence. So it's suddenly here again. Yeah. You know, there's these philosophers going, whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting ahead of yourselves, guys. Right. You know, you're being too reductionist. You're 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 uh, just because you understand some sort of causal physical processes by virtue of neuroscience or through uh, investigations of microphysics or, Mm -hmm. you know, Girdle's theorems or whatever. I mean, yeah, you can throw math at this problem. You can throw all manner of physics and, you know, uh, uh, yeah, um, just just neuro- neurophysiology in general. But that is to philosophers a bit dancing around the subject, dancing mm-hmm. around the mystery, mm-hmm. perhaps getting closer to the core of the mystery. And some philosophers will say, "Oh, yeah, we we don't need to get closer to the core. We've already laid it bare." Others are saying, yep. "Wow, but no, but what what are the, what about all these other intuitions that you are not explaining through your mechanization or application of physics or science? Yep, uh, hyperscience, objective hyperscience, and that's that's what we we want to to really pull philosophy back into the conversation."
0: Let's do it. I mean, what I'm, what I'm getting in terms of like what matters. And I think, I think we got to like put a pin in what matters and why we're talking about it and then get into it. But I do think what I'm hearing and what you're saying to paraphrase or sum it up is something like, uh, it, it needs to matter because, uh, we're kind of fussing with our own, biology and our own future in these ways without maybe fully understanding what we're fussing with. And so there's some kind of risk, or maybe there's some kind of primordial fear or something that if we, like you're saying reductionism or mathematization or computer upload, something, something we might lose or miss out on some important feature Uh, that is represented by this kind of core concept in the philosophy of mind, this idea of the phenomenal consciousness. Yeah. Which is,
1: which is the totality of our waking existence.
0: Yeah. So say more, I mean, it is entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: let's, let's, let's drop back for a moment and make sure that we have appreciation, of the distinction between subjective and objective, for example. Sure. Some linguists and philosophers of language, some uh, other kinds of philosophers seek to reconcile the objective with the subjective in interesting ways. That's yeah. another deep level of inquiry in the philosophy of language or the philosophy of knowledge, which is called epistemology. But <clears throat> just to, to to acknowledge for a moment that there are, there are different kinds of properties. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, we might intuitively call them subjective and objective properties. Okay, another way we might describe those in over, in the overlapping domains would be conscious properties or mental properties on the one hand, and physical, causal properties on the other. Okay, so let me give you just a little baby steps example of this. Okay. Mm-hmm um imagine you're you wake up in the morning and the fir- and, and your mama's visiting you okay and the first thing you notice when you wake up is the smell of coffee and the smell of bacon two of my favorite scents by the yeah. way okay um and wow so i uh I, I i get up and i wander into the kitchen and of course you, you want to say thank you to mama because she got up first and did all that cooking but pretty much the first thing i do after thinking mama is get a fresh cup of coffee hold it up to my nose and grab a strip of that bacon even before i'm able to load my plate with all the other things that might be there like grits or eggs or whatever now that was me engaging in certain kinds of behavior yeah. and throughout most of the 20th century when you would talk about that process, it was in very, what we might call reductionist terms, okay? We would talk about, um, we would we would refer to consciousness, this, this stuff we take for granted, and I just said stuff, but forgive me for a moment. This something we call consciousness, we just took for granted, right? Mm-hmm. So we might describe, um, we might have some understanding of atoms and molecules, and of course, atoms and molecules rise from the steaming cup of coffee and so also do molecules of bacon and they strike the line the mucus lining of your nose which is which has nerve endings that send certain kinds of signals to your brain Uh, and and that activates centers in your brain that were evolved over millions of years and the circuitry fires in a certain pattern that is recognizable because it taps in certain memory banks about uh that you might find in a schema that we would call baconness or coffee-ness okay (laughs) yeah but there is in that moment uh this causal physical story okay oh and by the way that 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 neurological firing that corresponds by the way with this, this set of sensations that we've just ignored up to this point causes you to have certain kinds of behavior in stimulus response fashion OK, mm-hmm. so the response is the behavior. It, it just mm-hmm. is the behavior. You know, what happens next is just that I grab for the cup of coffee or I grab a strip of bacon. Right. Yeah. But all so I just told uh, let's and let's imagine also that I'm a, a, a really, really intelligent scientist. And ne- neurophysiolog and the neurophysiology is completely known to me. Yep. So also is the microphysics of coffee molecules and all that shit. Okay, I can tell you pretty much a complete causal story of, from the behavior of grabbing that piece of bacon all the way back in time through my neurophysiology, through my nerves, cells in the body, you know, in my arm and all this stuff, backwards causation, trace that causal chain back to, um, you know, lying in the bed and having those molecules strike the the lining, lining of my nose, right? Yeah. So between that behavior and that experience is a causal story that seems to me to be relatively complete and especially causally complete. That is to say, Mm -hmm. if we think of ourselves as physical beings in a physical universe, the causal story is is complete enough that we don't need all this other shit for that to have happened, namely the bacon-grabbing behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay? And yet we have this stuff— that is the totality of our existence,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is the uh, the totality of our experienced existence is what yeah. I mean to say. Yeah. Because I- existence isn't happening for us when we're unconscious or we're dead. Yeah. Okay. So in our, on our, our waking lives, we have this technicolor set of experiences. That is the redness of red, the smelly, the... The experiential s- smell of bacon—not—not not molecules striking the lining of your nose, but closing your eyes and imagining bacon smell right now when I say it—it it just happens. Your mouth starts to water unless you're yeah. of a, of a religious persuasion that prescribes pork, right? Um, yeah. Whatever it is you like to eat, you know, put that into the X. Yep. But the idea here is we've got this causal story, the neurophysiology. We know more and more about that with each passing day. And yet we have all of this technicolor that it in some sense accompanies or mediates, or we don't know what its nature is, but it is all-encompassing and it is our phenomenal consciousness. It is our experience. Yeah. At every moment. Yep. And those are two different kinds of stories. And we mm-hmm. want to know how they reconcile, if they reconcile, what is the nature of their uh intimacy from a metaphysical yeah. standpoint. And yeah science and dancing around these questions of science seems to leave us with a gap, a major gap, an explanatory gap on the relationship between those two very different kinds of properties. And if you don't think they're very different kinds of properties, we can go into more why they are.
0: Yes. Or at least more of why some people think they are because some people would challenge that idea. But I think what you said was a a great account and I'll sum it up in, in kind of a, Maybe my version of it here. Well, one thing you did not say was is the phrase what it is like, which I like as a phrase, mm-hmm. like yeah, there's a, there's a story of what it's like, what it's like to feel it, what it's like to experience it, what it's like to be there, what it's like to have it, do it, whatever this mm-hmm. is, is pointing to the phenomenal aspect, the phenomenal consciousness aspect. And I think the. The the issue that has puzzled philosophers forever is this idea that like well we could explain in these causal terms as much as we wanted like a lot
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and we could give a full account without ever having to invoke something like consciousness like what it was like but if we did that it would still feel like there's some hugely important thing. That's missing, which is like the entire experience of what it's like to be there while it's happening, and that is the explanatory gap, right? Like, yes, a totally yes. causally closed account, whatever sort of layer of f- psychology or physics or you know quantum physics or f- whatever you know general relativity you get into, right? Like,
1: it it seems to dance around the the mystery. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, take, let's go for a moment to the most sophisticated computer programs, okay, mm-hmm. in these high-powered processors sitting on servers somewhere executing a program, okay? When, when that happens, there's a certain set of relationships, um, you know, inputs into, into the processors. Mm-hmm. Now, all the sophisticated events that happen, causal mm-hmm. physical events that happen— that can be understood at the software layer through code and also at the hardware layer through the processing that is required to execute the code okay right right all of these causal stories are also complete Mm -hmm. what if we were to ask what is it like for that computer to have executed that code right it's a cool question And, and, and and I think the answer intuitively for us is, well, it's not like anything. Most people would say, well, it's just not like anything. It's just a machine doing its thing. It's, it's like a, a wind-up toy. You yeah. know, if you have a wind-up toy, it's just a mo- more way more sophisticated wind-up, wind-up toy with transducers and, and code and, and this and that. But at the end of the day, it's instantiating through a machine some causal physical process to get a certain result. That is executing the algorithm. Yep. And and yet people who see human beings as embodied as evolved as living in a physical universe also can tell some sort of s- causal story about executing something that's causal sure. physical however yep. different it may be. Okay? So when we think about what it's like and try to appreciate that there's an old story from Frank Jackson who was an Australian philosopher? He's uh, known for the story of Mary, and the and the basic idea. Um, this is one of my favorites. I like your "What is it like?" That's the that's a great Thomas Nagel example. What mm-hmm. is it like to be a bat? You yep. know, he's he 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 he's, he sets his up not by asking "What is it like to execute a program?" Because that seems pretty obvious that that's that's just sophisticated wind up toys that humans sure. have made. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those aren't alive. Those aren't sentient or conscious. Right. At least not yet. We don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a bat now a bat is sufficiently like a human, you know, it's still got a head and a brain and a body and it's it, a mammal. and sensations. And it makes, and it's a mammal, it makes noises and it seems to care for its young and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet it makes all of these funny shrieks. And some of them are uh, out of the range of our ability to even to perceive it like dog right. whistle ranges, that sort of yep. stuff. So the bat makes all of these chirps and noises and we refer to that as echolocation. Yep. The echolocation abilities that bats have uh sends us, sends sound waves out into the world to reverberate off objects, perhaps a juicy moth, mm-hmm. to come back and that has a certain um, level of resolution in mm-hmm. the bat's brain that if we had echolocation in an evolved bat brain we're Sort of spliced into our bodies we might also be able to know quote what it's like to be a bat right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i love that example too it's like there it must seem like it must seem really cool like when i look at my computer screen and i see the a picture of michael porcelli nodding his head approvingly i hope um <laughs> <laughs> then then i i then i you know i can describe this what it's like process uh, I, that's, I can describe the process on the one hand, and I can describe the experience on the other. Um, but this is all something that's going on like an inner movie for me that no one else can have. But if yeah. it's a physical causal experience, right? If the world is physical and we are embodied in a physical universe, just like machines, just like computers, robots, uh, people too, what is this extra, this extra phenomenon that right. is this warm warm fuzzy um what it's likeness yeah that 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 accompanies all these processes for people when they perceive or they represent the world so frank jackson really quickly and i'll and then and to to, to try to put a a really quite fine a point on on this okay i don't think that's too risky yeah frank jackson uses the idea of this neuroscientist named mary who's the most fantastically smart neuroscientist yet you can imagine in fact she's so damn smart she's won all the macarthur genius awards she's won the nobel prize she's won it all and that's because she's the most intelligent human being that's ever been on the face of the planet and no and has read all the (laughs) damn books but the whole time she's been doing her research and and learning as she has mary has been living in a black and white room Okay. That means all of the buttons and the dials and she's clothed in black and white and whatever. Let's just, you know, yep. there's some weird aspects of this story from the standpoint of being a, um, a, um, an, a, a, an intuition pump, but just, sure. just for a moment, we're in this room that's black and white. Um, everything she sees is in, in black and white. The book she reads of, you know, white paper and black type, she learns all about the microphysical processes in the brain. She learns about all of the, you know, ideas about atoms and molecules. All of this good stuff. Being this, this highly sophisticated scientist, she learns, in, in black and white.
0: Right. In a black and white room. About, she learns about eyeballs and the visual yeah. cortex, and she learns about all the different rod, cone types, and the retina. Cones and rods. She knows all about. Mm-hmm color in a theoretical way
1: right about the way light waves of a certain frequency appear uh uh, to to certain human subjects in certain ways that that make them say red or make them say blue if it's higher frequency they'll say blue right Right. Uh, if it's lower frequency they'll say red she understands all these phenomena in fact she understands them better than you and i or anyone else in the whole wide world right And yet one day someone finally comes to the room and knocks at the door, and Mm -hmm. it's Michael Porcelli. He's got a big smile on his face, and he's holding in his hand a red Macintosh apple which he presents to Mary for the first time. And Mary, and I'm gonna put my spin on the story, Mary weeps like these little kids, and these are my favorite videos to watch on YouTube, like these little kids getting cochlear implants for the first time, yeah. or outfitted with special glasses for the first time because they have certain problems with their retini. Yeah, I mean, the, the, she weeps because she has learned something new. And if she's learned something new, what is the nature of that thing that she's learned new? It's redness. It is the what it's like quality of that Macintosh Apple. Yeah. And in that novelty, she thought she knew everything there was to know, and the causal physical processes would cover it. But indeed, she has learned something quite novel. And it's really difficult to deny that she has been introduced to a property that she didn't know before, because it was the experience. It was that what it is like that she now apprehends that is separate from that entire causal story.
0: Yep. Yep. Totally. These are, these are fairly modern takes. And and I like, you know, you bringing in the, what it's like to be a bat and Mary the color scientist. These are classics in the philosophy of mind literature to trying to yeah. create in the listener, this idea that like, Oh, that's, there is a gap. There's an explanatory gap. There's many ways to point. If you go back to more ancient philosophers, I mean, it was just like the mind body problem. And you know, this idea of like du- dualism and Descartes kind of had this kind of, Interaction through the pineal gland, or something like this, right? There's like the right. body is interacting with a soul, and the soul is sort of like I don't know, tacked on or something in some kind of metaphysical space to the central part of your brain, or like people trying to make sense in one way or another. Like, how to how do we bridge this gap? Because it does sort of seem like this subjective dimension or this experiential dimension is somehow different or distinct from these causal explanations or of, of physical properties and mechanisms and so forth. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I <laughs> go ahead. yeah, I mean, no, I just, I, I imagine the listeners right now, like I am listening to your sort of, you know, sexy California radio voice, right. And your, <laughs> your voice has a certain timbre and you have mm-hmm. a certain, you know, melody to the, the way you speak your sentences. Right, so do I. It's different, um, but the 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 way you we regard when we close our eyes and listening to this very podcast, that experiential, that experiential aspect of of the sound of our voices, is a very different kind of property than talking about sound waves being emitted in your earphones or your headphones. It's, it's just a different, it's just a different species of knowledge. So we want to be able to understand the mechanism that connects those two, because I don't think anybody denies that there is a deep, deep intimacy between the experience of hearing our voices and that causal physical story. That metaphysical intimacy is also hard to to deny. And when I say metaphysical, I'm not talking about woo woo stuff. Yeah. I'm, t- I'm talking about the nature of reality. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so, and so the, those, if, if, if when I say the nature of reality, I'm talking about things that are real. Yeah. Something that is real. Is it not real? The sound of my voice in your mind right now, is that not right. real?
0: Right. It would be hard to deny this experiential dimension at all. Like, I mean, it seems like if there's anything that I have ever thought or believed or come to know or understand even about physical properties, like, you know, I learned about atoms in science class or whatever it was that I thought that I learned about the physical world. I couldn't have learned that except through the fact that like I heard somebody say something or I watched something or looked at something or read a book or something like this. Like at some point, all of the things that I think I know about this physical world out there had to kind of like come through this window, metaphorically speaking of my phenomenal conscious experience. And so in a certain way, everything that I think I know about a physical world out there or even causal mechanisms themselves, has come through and been filtered through this window of phenomenal consciousness at one point or another, like creating the knowledge in my mind through interacting with the outside world. The way you're talking about it right now. So, so consider what you
1: just said. You said this window of, of phenomenal consciousness, right? Right. I'm imagining that there's an inner movie, like a TV in your head playing, or when you say a window, maybe it's a a TV screen in your mind, you know, the, the inner film as it were. Yeah. Um is that kind of what you're driving at when you say that?
0: Uh you know, kind of. I mean the the idea of the Cartesian theater or, or like that there's some kind of way that it presents. I mean I w- sure. I mean I I want to start poking holes in these ideas, but but yeah, I I'm just really more saying something about knowledge, like mm-hmm. to the degree that I think that I have knowledge about a physical world or causal mechanisms in the physical world like atoms and energy and molecules and matter. Like I learned that at some point. And when I learned it, I learned it through my phenomenal consciousness, right? In a a way. It was like words somebody was saying or words I was reading or diagrams I was looking at or something like that. Like all of my knowledge of the physical world passes through my phenomenal consciousness.
1: So you have a window metaphor. You have a through. You use the word through, which is I guess a preposition of some sort. Um, and, and it's like, you're actually describing consciousness, which yeah. is everything to you as right. being a medium. Yeah. Is that even appropriate? Right? Like it, it seems it, like it
0: sometimes. It, yeah. It
1: seems like it, the way we talk about consciousness, the way, certainly the way you're talking about consciousness right now is, is that it mediates to some degree, uh, between the world and something, which i mm-hmm. let's call that the i the ego the the inner homunculus you know that is sure, experiencing sure. all this stuff yeah. or being fed this thing but it's it's almost like there's there's to talk about that way separates it out which is beneficial in some ways to talk about to talk about two separate kinds of properties but in another way it's it's almost like why is why is consciousness this Why why do we consider it a medium? It's almost as if it seems indispensable in some way. Okay. But when we talk about the world in causal physical terms, that ought to be enough, right?
0: Depends. I mean, let's, I want to push this to the extreme. Yes. I I want to, I want to push, I'm going to push it way over to one end and I'm going to push it way over to the other end. Because if you, if we keep going in this medium or essential or like what it is like, it seems like that's obvious you can go all the way to there's a tradition in Western philosophy called idealism. Um, and then, you know, in Eastern philosophy there, it pops up a lot of time where they kind of take these arguments to the extreme and say like, actually the world of matter and energy and physical causation that isn't real,
1: right? (laughs) The real
0: thing is simply consciousness and its properties.
1: Like Barclayan simulation theory or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Bishop Barclay. Barclay was
0: the was the yeah, Bishop Berkeley was the English idealist. Um, but you know, there's a there's a lot in the continental tradition about idealism, and this sort of pushes it in a weird way that is really foreign to a lot of the modern mind, right? It, the modern mind either thinks of it like as all physical shit or as this kind of like portal right there's like a outside world and an inside world and there's some interaction between them or there's some passage through them like this medium or a cartesian theater or something like this but if you if you follow the idealism which they kind of did you know i mean descartes sort of did this interactionism thing and you know the empiricists sort of like went nah screw that we're just going to talk about physical shit right (laughs) but then you know in, in northern europe the those philosophers went with the idealism shit like and they went, took it really far and they were like, what if it's all just projections of mind of some kind, right? Like things are not even that's the whole stupid uh philosophical if, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nowhere one to hear, it doesn't make a sound. And it's sort of like that's just, that was a serious question, right? It, no, it doesn't, you know, because there's no perceiver, right? Like, yes, the, yes. these kind of idealism. uh." versions of philosophy, which are sort of like the consciousness or the awareness or the mind is the primary thing and everything else that we think of as physical is really just inside of the mind.
1: Right. And and there's the container metaphor of inside the mind even yeah. though there's this continuity with the rest of the universe, that's in in many respects undeniable. We think of thoughts as being behind that window of experience, that window of consciousness yep. and the outside world is being in front of it. Um, yeah. and yet we, we also think in some respects that, that going back to this idea of consciousness being indispensable, um, intuitively i want to ask you i want to ask you this question and i and i present this to the listeners as well um imagine there's this big pile of rocks and dirt or something and there's a sufficiently advanced nanotechnology nanomanufacturing technology that allows you to take that big pile of dirt and manure whatever anything anything you want sand okay Mm -hmm. and reproduce down to the last microphysical detail and I mean the last microphysical detail. Mary would be able to tell you how to how to do that. Now, yep. this by the way is not an emulation like Robert Hansen is talking about. And I have some issues with the, you know, neur- neuromorphology of of software uploads is the idea of consciousness. And we can you and I may may argue about this, but yep. um let's say we have the neuromorphology completely replicated down to the last microphysical detail because this machine does something out of Star Trek, which is scan the human and do an exact duplicate of it. And now it's going to be situated differently in space and and time. But otherwise, in that moment, there is an exact microphysical duplicate twin of you. Okay? We're going to call Michael Prime. Okay? So it's Michael and Michael Prime. And now you're standing next to your microphysical twin. We intuitively think... Well, let me ask you, is Michael Prime conscious or not?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: I think Michael Prime is conscious too. Yeah. But what we have done there again is said, okay, now we're saying that with microphysical duplication, in other words, if we replicate the causal story exactly, consciousness will somehow come along for the ride. Yeah. Okay, well, what is the nature of that coming along for the ride? What is the nature of that co- intimacy between those mental properties on the one hand and the physical properties of the other? And if you don't think that they're mysterious, consider the last time you, um, you had a pain in your arm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you go to the doctor, they're going to point to your arm. They're going to put local anesthetic on your arm and all this stuff. And this idea that there's pain in your arm. But if pain is an objective physical phenomenon, why can't you cut open your arm and find the pain,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because if pain is some objective physical stuff, the pain ought to be in your arm. Okay, well, you know, it's more sophisticated neuroscience and and philosophers will say, well, that's just, you know, that's just a category error, right? You don't need to worry about pain being in your arm because we understand the physical processes of sending nerve signals to your brain that indicate pain that represent that pain and in fact we know people who have phantom limb syndrome have their limbs cut off and still and still claim to experience pain suffering the ability to move their hand and so on even when they've had their their arm chopped off so yeah. that that those kinds of mysteries if if i experience a certain kind of pain why is that pain not existent independently of my neurophysiology. Okay, we're back to it being intimate somehow, but when we wanted to describe the mechanism of intimacy, it starts to break down a little bit. People, you know, you start to get into this, oh, well, I mean, you get all kinds of crazy shit like Penrose microtubules and, you know, um, trying to understand to continue to deepen or complexify the physical story doesn't really shed a whole lot of light or heat on these other kinds of properties as such.
0: Yeah. So, well, I mean, let's, I kind of want to get into a bunch of other ways of thinking about this because I think we've, I mean, there's a way I think we've really pointed to the mystery of it quite a bit. And and hopefully people have experienced that. And maybe as we kind of circle around these other ways of handling it, the mystery will, you know, come along for the ride as well. Um, but I think some people really have intuitions the other way, right? Like it, it, this thing about pushing it all the way the other way. Like, let's just say like, Hey, you know, you've, if you've ever gone under gen, general anesthesia, it was sort of like, you know, you disappeared for a while and you woke back up or you go to bed at night and you fall asleep and maybe you have dreams, which are kind of conscious, but like, there's, there's times when you're not dreaming deep sleep. There's no REM sleep happening there. REM sleep. So, all right, what happens there? Well, you're just sort of gone, right? And so, okay, well, there's definitely some we can correlate this pretty well. And this is this isn't like mysterious to people. We're like, oh, whatever the consciousness was that was happening during your waking life ain't there when your body's doing another thing. So it just it seems like uh, you know, the causal property of of some interaction between or whatever you want to call it causal or interactive or something is happening that's that's correlating with the physical thing or even take the pain in your arm hey if you put in local anesthesia you know it's like we know these this molecules in this syringe will do a thing which will like disappear something out of your conscious awareness right like at some level to think that there's some weird, woo, mystical fucking soul realm of conscious entities, spirits, and souls floating around that are like immaterial. Like, you know... I mean, this is most of be... human
1: civilization, by the way. Exactly what you're saying. I Think of it as is, is spooky spirit stuff. Like, it is just the extra stuff. It is this um, totally non-physical substance, to use Descartes' language, some spirit sure. stuff that animates the body. I yeah. mean, this seems to be... Uh, uh, this is the plausible story of consciousness for thousands of years. And it's only now in this age of, 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 of hyper, higher, higher science that we're even, you know, we can imagine taking a functional MRI of your brain. As soon as you wake up in the morning and smell that bacon. Right. So to your point, we can get, it's like, look at that. I could look at that 3d model of the brain. You see that red area right there. You see that green area that's you experiencing bacon smell. What do yeah. you mean that's me experiencing bacon smell?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, here this into I I'm I'm trying to speak to our listeners who like have the intuition of like literally 180 degrees the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Right? It seems really fucking obvious. There isn't anything else. Right? Like it's just like look, if I fall asleep and the consciousness goes away and I wake up and it goes away, or you put me in anesthesia it goes away and I come back and it goes away or I fucking, you know, take some LSD and it changes it and then I, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Like there's there's we have so many examples of like shit that's basically like molecules and energy and matter doing something radically to our lived conscious experience. It seems like whatever it is that the consciousness is, is very, very tightly coupled, at least to whatever the physical substrate is. I don't think it's this. I mean, I don't buy these dual I'm going to get a little argumentative here, like these dualistic style arguments like, you know, Chalmers in his book, The Conscious Mind, you know, kind of is a response, you know, Daniel Dennett wrote Consciousness Explained, which is sort of like some people say it's Consciousness Explained away because he's like a very physicalist guy. And, you know, Chalmers kind of came back making a strong argument for a kind of quasi modernist dualism. Like, you know, you can't just eliminate the conscious properties. And I'm like, well, I mean, to some degree, whatever kind of leftover something, whatever the thing that Mary experiences, the color scientist, has to be extremely tightly coupled to the physical substrate in ways that you can't really blame somebody like Daniel Dennett for going like, yeah, it's just fucking causally linked. Maybe we don't understand the causal linkage, but like, come on, dude. There's no fucking Cartesian theater in the mind. There's no fucking window into another realm. It's just... We already can see all these ways that it's really just enmeshed with the physical substrate. We have so many examples. It's a bit silly. Well, here's to think here's that- a
1: here's here's where I think the mystery deepens, and I wanna I wanna pull us back from. And I I totally I, I I told I told you this in the past. I am yeah one who's very drawn to what is known as eliminativism, which is this Daniel Dennett is a, a Paul and Patricia Churchland also uh, I think are known as as these. Um, and I love Daniel Dennett. I mean, I, you know, I yep. think the guy's great. Yep. And yet, um, you know, the, the eliminativist position is just, is, a one of the species of not, it's just these properties are just these properties. And there's some identity relationship between the physical, mental and physical properties, but mm-hmm. that there are no conscious properties. We just we simply eliminate them, that they're a their curious manner of speaking that is a holdover from talking about spirit stuff and folk psychology and this and that. And and instead it, there is this, it's so tightly coupled so as not to exist, which is to say it's an illusion. Well sure. You know, and so that's gonna run squarely into people's intuitions about about things. Um and, and I'll and I'll explain why. So let's I'll, I'll, I'll stick with our, our coffee example or bacon and coffee. Let's use coffee this time. If you have this behavior of reaching for the coffee, that is, goes back to the story of the coffee molecule striking the inside of your nose and creating some kind of sensation in your brain. We said that we stipulated that that is a complete causal story. Okay. Mm-hmm. That if we were some sort of robot that could we were programmed to sense through sensor technology those molecules and engage when when you sense that you engage in the grabbing behavior of your of a cup of coffee anytime it's nearby and those molecules are emitted from the cup you could program the robot to grab it and pick up the cup and yet we would not ascribe consciousness to that causal physical process we would also say that that causal physical process despite being in a human being is a hundred percent causally efficacious. Do you see what I mean to by explain, that?
0: To to explain it.
1: To explain yeah. the grabbing behavior. That we right. did not need the what it's like properties to explain the grabbing behavior. But if that if that's what what it means, then that means you have consciousness as this useless epiphenomenon. That the what it's like character of of, or property of this, of this particular phenomenon is not what causes you to do the reaching at all. And that's very counterintuitive. Like, no, it's the experience of the coffee smell that makes me grab for it. Not, not this other stuff about molecules and sensory motor cortex moving, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's, so we get, we find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma that I think is, is pretty baffling. So on the one hand, if you deny that, as as Dennett does, he denies the existence of these properties, much less that they, you know, are causally efficacious, right? Um, so that all the causal phys- uh, all the causal efficacy happens through this this certain kind of story, right? Yes. Yeah. This, this narrative of explanation through scientific or objective means, the subjective aspects of whatever that intimate story is that we all acknowledge exists like the redness of Mary's apple, the smelliness of the coffee, whatever those properties just hang out. They seem like these, like, what the hell are they for? If they're not causally efficacious, why are they hanging on for the ride? Why are we not just uh, unconscious robots unfolding a physics story without consciousness riding along in an illusion?
0: Right. Yeah, that's a great question.
1: And if there is – and so if we say, okay, well, that's not the case, we we have to say that these are – that these properties are causally efficacious. We already Mm -hmm. stipulated that it seems like there's 100 percent of causal efficacy already in the explanation. So now we have properties that are also explaining some phenomenon through a causal physical story because we wouldn't ascribe causal efficacy to them then we have what is known as causal overdetermination. Yes. Which is what, what, what we've already got 100% of the causal story. What is this extra stuff? What is right. it doing?
0: Yeah, what is it doing? Yeah. I mean you're you're I love that you hit this one. I mean I I'm I'm, I'm feeling the part of me that wants to c- counter argument and maybe we're going to recapitulate some internal debates of in the philosophy of mind here, but what I'm getting about the one you just said here to sum it up is Okay, it's a. Uh, I think of it as the problem of epiphenomenalism, right? What you yeah. talked about it's like, well, if the conscious, if we have a full causal story over here with all the physics, but there's this other thing that comes along for the ride that's the awareness the consciousness, then, but it doesn't do anything. That doesn't seem like it makes any sense either. Especially, I mean, if I were to fucking just say to you, hey, man, I'm having an experience of what it's like to be here, right? Like, <laughs> what, what's causing, what the fuck is causing my mouth to do that besides the fucking. Conscious properties, right? Right. So you can't define the conscious properties as strictly non causal. Otherwise, humans like you and me would never say shit like, ooh, the redness of that red, right? Like, we just, we would never say those words. So there has to be something, right? <laughs> like, I think epiphenomenalism is crap. I mean, I think, I think you, the, the overdetermination, the causal overdetermination is another reason why it is as well. Like, whatever it is. But those it, are the horns of the dilemma. What?
1: You either have yes. to be committed to causal overdetermination or you have to be committed to epiphenomenalism.
0: I don't know. I don't think so. But maybe. I mean, there's th- well, this we is we where get, we
1: can... if we can split that baby somehow or get out of that problem. Right. Then then we're then then you know we may be able to contribute something. Come out of come out of philosophy mind retirement and contribute something to literature.
0: <laughs> sure. But I'm I'm just saying, like there these different competing schools of thought try to do that. Like if you, I think the emergentists actually um try to answer the problem of the epiphenomenalism in some way, right? Where they're saying, um, they're saying something like, look, what whatever those conscious properties are, it's some kind of byproduct. Let's just say there's, you know. A dump dumb rock or dust, moon dust, or some, you know, there's nothing there, right? It's just very simple, you know, molecules of matter kind of just stacked up randomly, clumped together in heaps, right? But then you get something like um a complex enough structure, right? Whatever complex enough means, let's just leave that aside for a moment. But whatever Mm -hmm. that is, it starts to exhibit something that is like a conscious property i mean the simplest example in the philosophy of mind is a thermostat like is a thermostat conscious right and you, you know mm-hmm. it might sound weird like what the heck do people what mean why but like well it has a, a sensory input which is the temperature right and it has an actuator which is like to switch on or switch off, mm-hmm. right the the temperature control mechanism so it has a sensor and it has an actuator and it has an internal state and essentially the internal state interacts with the sensor and the actuator in a feedback loop and maybe that right there is the sufficient degree of physical complexity that give rise, of, give rise to some conscious to give rise to some conscious property and then if you kind of like you know give your thermostat a mouth or something or a memory or whatever like it could start to tell you yeah it was hot yesterday so i turned on the ac and then it got cool and then i turned on the heater and it was at this time right right you could just imagine just adding a few more features, and maybe, you know, I'm adding a whole big chunk of features here, but but whatever it is, if you give it an ability to communicate about what it's doing, it might then indeed start to exhibit the behavior. Like they would have us impute consciousness to it. Like, I believe you're conscious, Max, but I, I can't, I never, and this is the problem of other minds. Like, I don't have direct <clears> access to your consciousness, <throat> but I believe that your consciousness because your behavior exhibits some version of the, whatever it is that I would impute consciousness to in a kind of transitive way by observing your behavior. Well, I mean, if you're talking thermostat was was doing something like that, you might be like, oh, it's a simple, it's a super duper simple organism that can communicate about its inner state, including interacting with the world based on its inner state. Maybe it is sufficiently conscious and that's all we need. Like once you get to this level of complexity, you cannot help, but impute something consciousness like, and if it can communicate, you cannot help, but talk about it in those, what it is like terms. You just well, can't help
1: we, it. We, we know there are single celled organisms that have this sensory input kind of thing that you're talking about. Like they're able to yeah. determine yeah. something in their surrounding. And it's like, if yeah. Like an amoeba. It, yeah. amoeba, yeah. It's like, if, if, if it gets hot by a certain number of degrees, turn left you know, it might be yeah. as simple as that in terms of it's quote unquote programming. If you think yeah. about amoebas being, and you know, they have a high degree of complexity relative to other things in the universe, like a simple atom. Um, right. But they're far less complex than, than a multi-celled organism or even a higher level organism, like a fish or a cat or an ape. And when we, we think of it on a continuum of complexity, it seems like that there is a broader and deeper level of both phenomenal consciousness and intelligence that accompanies this complexity. So yeah. There's no doubt that complexity plays some sort of role. Um, the question is, does does complexity suffice to explain the relationship between the mental properties on the one hand and physical properties on the other, um, maybe, maybe there's a part of the explanatory gap that gets covered through so, some, some understanding of complexity, the relationships between parts and wholes. We are, after all, multicelled organisms, you know, each mm-hmm. each individual mm-hmm. cell might not be conscious per se, but in the aggregate, the way they're configured, there seems to be something that happens with that yeah. level of complexity that we can point to and say, okay, that's significant. So ha- ha- what then, um, you know, going back to this question of, of robots and, and artificial intelligence and not to linger on that too long, because we want to do a whole episode on that, as we say, yeah. yeah, but it seems like if we can begin faithfully to represent or replicate the the, the minimum viable of what you just described, of those inputs, right. outputs, and everything in, beh- in, in between and not be behaviorists about it because behaviorists thought everything in the brain was kind of a black box. And we needed a, the cognitive right. science revolution. The cognitive yeah. science revolution really brought us out of the the kind of um, the behaviorist yes. way of thinking, which though understandable was woefully inadequate, right? Yeah. Uh, humans are not like tropistic animals, you know, stimulus response creatures and understanding what's in the black box is really, really fucking important to understanding both consciousness and indeed, you know, neuroscience and genetics and the rest of it. Um, so, so yeah. So like, does tell me about your, your particular views on, on this question of complexity, are you, are you, um, persuaded that that does some explanatory work to unpack that connection.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I have, I have one of my good friends, you know, who I've known for years. We have this debate over and over again. And I, I think in the end I'm of two minds and one is the, uh, the emergent complexity ver- version, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a, it actually is sort of a Darwinistic life version. Like if you, like we talk about the amoeba, like you can say, oh, look at this amoeba and it's like. Oh, it's sort of, or a, a little flagellate kind of single cell thing. It's like it's moving towards the uh, nutrients, right? So it's like it's moving towards the nutrient gradient, moving up in the positive. And you could be like, oh, it's, it sort of seems like it wants like more of those little like sugar molecules over in this little, the little pond or something like this. And we, is that conscious or not conscious? In some way, it starts to collapse down to like what we mean by almost the same thing we mean by life or a living thing, right? It has, some kind of, kind of a relationship with this environment, where it's sort of a local decrease of entropy, right? There's some kind of thermodynamic dissipation process that it's doing with its environment, and it's sort of like, kind of like acquiring some of the energy, kind of in a in in a, in an asymmetrical way, you know, across its boundary, it's sort of like hoarding up some energy and is using that energy to build some kind of internal mechanisms out of like little molecules. And then it uses that to essentially like gather more energy to right keep persisting. And you would be like, okay, let's say this is some rough approximation of what it means to be alive, right? Well, the complexity emergence view of consciousness, I think kind of correlates pretty strongly with these kinds of intuitions about life. like whatever properties that the the biophysics has that makes the thing sort of appear to be alive is just, what if it's just basically one and the same as some kind of like proto consciousness, maybe not a fully fledged human level of consciousness, but let's say it's sort of like a degree, like a drop of one of these mental properties, you might say. And you kind of have to keep building up more of these layers of complexity. And if you kind of you know, think of, um, Douglas Hofstadter's, uh, book, I am a strange loop or his Pulitzer prize winning book, uh, go Bach from way back in the late seventies, he talks about this idea of like, well, if you, if you get like a sophisticated enough multi-layer feedback loop inside of the information structure that is mm-hmm. built out of molecules, <laughs> neurons, whatever the hell it's built out of sort of he's trying to abstract it one layer away so it doesn't matter what you're talking about it being built out of but it's sort of like some kind of nested recursive layers of self-representation yes right and and once you have that you start to get something that looks like the human level of consciousness, or maybe the the dog level of consciousness, or the the mammalian level of the brain, or what, whatever kind of thing, where suddenly it's like, oh, it's it's not just sort of you know just immediately responding to like nutrients in this environment, like an amoeba go like go get more nutrients is you know it's actually has a representation of its own internal subsystems. Antonio Damasio talks about this too with his somatic marker idea, like as the kind of Proto consciousness, that there's actually some inner state representation of the internal, whatever, soma, the body mind system, and that thing inside of an, an information structure, like that relates that internal state to external percepts, right? And now you're starting to get like the beginnings of a narrative self or ego or whatever you want to call that thing, that that is kind of getting you to this layer of consciousness that kind of we have we have that would have us fucking say words about yeah, being yeah. conscious beings, right? Mm-hmm. Like once you kind of ramp up enough of this thing, you get a multi-layered feedback loop and that information structure is the thing that would have you at least have human-like consciousness that's being built out of this kind of proto-consciousness that say like a thermostat has. You see what I'm saying? This yeah. is the emergentist account that I like. I like it.
1: it's it's um It's a curious... It's a curious thing to think about because we have for for one thing you have a um uh, I'm looking at something on my computer screen right now that is a red dot, okay? Yeah. It's uh, it's it's what I could hit to close the recording right now, okay? And that red dot appears to me in a certain way appears yeah. to being the word phenomenon, okay? Yeah there is a close connection between appeared to in English and the Latin or the Greek rather Latin or Greek, maybe both. Hell, I don't know. Phenomenon. Okay. This appeared to quality um, of our consciousness. Um, And yet we have to parse just focusing on that one red dot for a moment as one single quail. Okay. Which is the singular version of qualia. Qualia being the totality of our experience. When you start to talk about this complex array that seems to be interwoven of a theory of the theory of other minds with Michael Porcelli, he's wearing headphones. There's all of these other, I'm tapping into all these memory systems and all of this other baggage from having known you that accompany my perceptions of you on the screen. But if I, but I can get, I can get rid of all of that and just focus on the dot for a moment, the red dot. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is some some specific quality in in experiencing that red dot. It's redness that appears in my consciousness, and I can isolate that. That isolable quail of redness, if I just restrict a conversation to that for a moment, then I want to know going, uh, going backwards on the complexity continuum, let's say it's a continuum from highly complex which are human beings and our and maybe our future robot overlords or the aliens that are waiting outside of our stratosphere you know yeah to, to meet us um <laughs> that all of us have this ability to apprehend red now we'll pass over for a moment the question of whether my red looks like your red or yours looks like green and mine looks like red and we have an inverted spectrum but right. just let's just assume for a moment that what that that what it's like quality for all of us is the same. That redness, that we all experience redness are, okay, mm-hmm. as a conscious property. Quail. Yeah. And then we extend that backwards through layers of diminished complexity, how far does that quail redness go? Right. When when you I don't know, know. We have we have to Where's have a visual going? system. Do we have to have a visual, uh, you know, a visual system in the brain? Um, we have to have some sort of eyes. Do we have to have eyes, or is redness experienced in a different way through these, through these more crude sensory, um, what proto eyes? I don't know what you know. Th- there's a sensory receptors in some animals and plant like plants. Yeah, the plants are able to pick Tropisms. up light.
0: And- yeah, tropism. Yeah.
1: Yep. And tropism is a response to, to, to different levels of, uh, for photosynthesis purposes, but also because you need to be drawn to the light to get it. But if you get too much, uh, you need to back off. So you'll get, you'll, you'll find plants moving away from the light. And that, tr- the, you know, those tropistic creatures are definitely a stimulus response, but the, is there something it is like for them to experience more red light or more blue light, for example? Yeah. and and that qualitative aspect of their experience does it even exist or is tropism simply a causal physical story that doesn't require this other epiphenomenal baggage um yeah and so i you know it, it seems intuitively plausible that that complexity tracks with the ability to see To for me to apprehend or be able to experience or have a what is like quality of the red dot on my screen right now. But I'm not sure it uh, explains the connection at that point, the mechanism at that point for that metaphysical intimacy between the two properties, mental and physical.
0: I mean, this is a little bit, you know, uh, either there's a way you keep trying to pull into the mystery of it. And I, and I respect that and I get it. And like, you know, if I, if I look at um, writers like Sam Harris or listen to how, what he says about consciousness or his wife has a new book called conscious and she likes to do this too. And very much in the tradition of David Chalmers, but like, but, but trip out on this man. Like what, how in the world is that really? Why does there have to be a quail there? Like, come on, like you can account for this without a quail. And you know, and, and and my inner Daniel Dennett, like, which is the, this is the perspective of a man Manage, at least during this portion of our conversation, says like, I don't think you need to have something that radical as a qualia or a quail or a conscious property. I, you know, it can simply be, you know, it, and, and we can put placeholders here as many of as, as many of them as we want, which you might say is, is lazy philosophizing, but let's just say like, Whatever this is, it's an interaction between these subparts, right? We this is um, to kind of invoke this idea of like subagents to the human brain. I mean, this uh, you know the corpus callosum split brain experiments gave us some experimental indication there could be you know two major subagents in the body. You know, Ian McGillchrist talks about this in his book um, "The Master and His Emissary." Uh, and split brain people have talked about it for a long time. Marvin Minsky in 1986 talked about the society of mind. Like what if there's a whole bunch of sub agents here in our brains that are just attending to different things. Um, And even in the therapy world, you have like internal family systems or kind of parts work or parts therapy, like get these different parts to talk about, you know, what they want inside yourself, like as a, almost like a therapeutic process. Right. And, and I would say there's, you know, in, uh, both AI research in terms of the society of mind, stuff that Minsky was talking about. And in the therapeutic one, you know, um, these, these intuitively kind of make sense, it's a split brain. It makes sense with that. And it makes sense with Dennett's, uh, he calls it his multiple drafts theory. And like, well, okay, this. This uh, linguistic part of you, you know, what the the part that talks or that forms words to talk, what is it doing? Well, it's kind of, you know, if, if you're kind of quiet, you know, and you're not talking, sometimes you can notice little kind of like words pop through your mind or little sentence fragments, you know, little blips. And it's like, what is that thing doing? It's sort of like, it's almost just sort of like, it's over there, ready, you know, you need to talk? Okay. Here comes a stream of words, blah, 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 right? Like, and it's whatever. And then there's some other part of you that's like, I don't know, some narrative uh, autobiographical. My name is Michael Porcelli and I was born in Escondido, California in 1974. And then I went to this school and then, right? Like there's this historical data bank kind of like strung together, like in a narrative style of a database. Okay. That's in there. And there's this other part that's sort of like, you know, light, color objects, right? It's just going like 3d world. It's just completely reconstituting a 3d world out here. Right. And then I'm like, oh, then there's some kind of social part of me. It's like, oh, other minds. Yep. There's another human being over here. His name is Max. Yep. And you're talking with him. Okay, cool. And then somehow there's some like output where I can like interact these things together where it goes, yes, the the quail of that red dot, bro. <laughs> like, it, like yeah. what am I there's doing? There's a
1: continuity among <laughs> all of those different systems that makes yeah. it, that makes it ho- holistic. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um, what if the, the 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 emergent account is saying look, it's nothing more than that, right? It's nothing more than some confluence. I mean, I, I, let's say we have this, you know, like Hofstadter said, this uh, recursive layered self-representation where I could just, well, what is that? Well, that's another process. That, it's the introspector. It's sort of like, what's going on in there, right? And it goes, and I can do this thing, all these things together. But like I could ask myself... What's going on in there? There's a red dot. Okay, here's a here's a narrative part that can make words. And I'm like, here's a max that, that can listen to the words. And it goes like, blop, the quail of a red dot. blah, And we, what is that? That's nothing more than like all these sub parts sort of got to a little cue for a second and they just went boom, 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 boom. And then I fucking exhibited a behavior, right? And that seems like, seems like what it is like, seems like I'm narrating a conscious experience, but it's not necessarily that there's some kind of like cartesian theater that there's has no it, a strict theater. continuity but there's right. no strict continu there's not even a strict continuity of consciousness like necessarily there's just a bunch of sub agents kind of yeah in a row.
1: This, this reminds me of that multiple drafts theory from uh Two. Yeah, too yeah, that, yeah that's
0: his thing yeah. yeah
1: i you know i um it the before we uh, I, I want i want to you know give eliminativism its due because i i really do think that my instinct it's a bias let's call it a bias my bias sure. is an occam's razor kind of kind of thing right for anything right. i i'm biased to, for science to science and yeah. and and i believe that science has demonstrated throughout history um that it knows how to do more explanatory work than anything you know than than any other kind of or mode of being human to confer understanding. And so when there is this great temptation to defer to science, so you get the Douglas Hofstetter self-referential loops sort of, uh, you know, and you can map, you could probably, he could probably do some sort of mathematical equations to, to sort of describe or limb that phenomenon um, in, in a way that would make a mathematician feel like, feel like ooh that field seems to fill in the gap nicely. And then there, you know, yep. Roger Penrose will come along and describe this this phenomenon of microtubules, which is a theoretical right. construct that he as a physicist has, that at the level of consciousness in the brain, that there's a certain uh physical yep. property of microtubules. And when it does a certain thing, boom, that represents consciousness. And look, there are all of these different kinds of kinds of stories in physics, stories in yep. math. Um And yep, and, and, and they're, they're almost like extra philosophical outside of philosophy in the way you regard them because philosophy deals with the subjective and they're dealing with the objective. And so when you say, look, if you're, you're trying to describe a Cartesian theater that doesn't exist. Yes, yes. But to, to deny those conscious properties as they appear uh in every moment of waking life is equally problematic in 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 sort of being at odds with our intuitions so yes my bias my intuitions about conscious properties are strong my bias to- towards uh scientific explanations and i love the sort of fractal aesthetic yeah. nature of the kind of hofstetter line of thinking because yeah. you know when you, you talked earlier about taking acid or taking mushrooms you can see the sort of fractal nature of consciousness in in those in those kinds of experiences and they're radically subjective experiences yep. there's no scientist that can come along and tell you exactly what you're perceiving there's n- at least is is it in principle possible that I don't know but there's something radically subjective about the, exp- the hallucinatory experience of someone taking acid you might be able to do a yeah. functional mri you might be able to do a neuroscience of 50 years from now that say they are likely experiencing something that looks vaguely fractal and has light sources and they're tapping into these certain memory banks from their past to do some kind of you know vague impressionistic maybe theory of what you got going on in you but that that is a hard that what is going on inside the person who's taken the lsd is yeah. profound and direct in ways that the functional mri and its accoutrements will never be able to 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 describe yeah um now i want to i want to i want to challenge you for a moment to take yeah. the okay so if we just we describe this process from maybe there's these like actuators and the, these little sensory inputs and actuators on something like a thermometer that represent the most basic requirements for having what it's like properties for having conscious properties. Okay. At some, at some level of consciousness, there gotta be some level of complexity. It's going to, maybe it's not a moment, maybe it's a continuum, but at some point, we'll start to have these kind of properties that we're talking about and they can, and the referent will be the same. Okay, but let's extrapolate that into levels of consciousness that are higher. I mean, sorry, uh, levels of complexity that are higher than humans. Okay. All right. Um, and le- in fact, let's talk about the universe as being, uh, the multiverse even, as being one of the, of those levels of potential levels of complexity. That yes could have higher level emergent properties. This is the thing that, because, and I want, because this is the way I'm acknowledging your emergentist thesis, because I do think there is something to this. I'm not sure it resolves the questions of the explanatory gap between physical and mental properties, but it definitely, there is some, at least correspondence to level of complexity and richness of conscious experience. Yes. Okay. Okay. And same goes with intelligence and same goes with other, yes. other emergent properties. Okay. Mm-hmm, that would, mm-hmm. you, you might bundle with consciousness Sure. and ask mm-hmm. yourself, what is it like to be the universe? And my mm-hmm. answer to that question is I sure as hell don't know. Cause I don't know what it's like to be a bat either and experience echolocation as a conscious property, but I can tell yeah. you this, I think bats do have some experience of echolocation, that there are phenomenal properties associated with being a bat, and therefore, there could be a level of consciousness associated with emergent properties in the universe, and this is where I, this is where I, this is the moment I went from, by the way, just I'll confide in you, being an agnostic instead of an atheist. OK, yeah. not only yeah. did I ha- did I have peak experiences with certain substances we've been talking about on the show um, that caused me mm-hmm. to f- have this sense of uh, of the ineffable and the noetic um, as properties of, of experience of my experience that made me back yes. off from my rabid atheism and the, like the, the Sam Harris variety. Um, yeah, but also it's this when you coupled, when I coupled that with extrapolating into levels of complexity beyond humans, beyond human complexity, Mm -hmm. it caused me or it prompted me to question whether there is an emergent consciousness that is even higher level to humans and it works on a different scale to human scale consciousness. So that Mm -hmm. prompted me to walk back from the, precipice i guess you could say of atheism into agnosticism Mm -hmm. to say okay maybe the universe is consciousness maybe there is this collective all mind that has causal properties that are far more sophisticated in their interconnections in their holism and and they are accompanied by emergent properties of consciousness on that are orders of magnitude more complex and and strange than i could ever imagine um and that that could be something that is, if not God, a deity of some sort, a living universe. Mm-hmm.
0: Like a superconscious thing. Yeah. Okay. This is this is fun because I think we're gonna branch off from uh, you know, it's kind of weird that you you were sort of thinking of it as an extension of emergentism and and I think I can get behind that. I think there's a way I follow the emergentism sort of all the way. Like there's a I, I let me just say like if I have parts, I have a an inner sort of dan dennett emergent complexity part right yeah and this part can go all the way as you say kind of superscalar, like like supra uh, human whatever integrative entity thing um but i also have an internal panpsychist as well um <laughs> tell us about so that. and i well, tell us about I think both of those things. things they kind of they kind of wrap around in yeah. this sort of weird way okay like i actually in the real early days of Wikipedia, I was sort of just finding Wikipedia pages that didn't exist yet. And I created the panpsychist one like a long, long time ago. Bless you, my child. It was was terrible, (laughs) but like it's been much improved by others since I was there. But uh, (laughs) so panpsychism just real briefly is this idea that like, well, it's not just amoebas. What if you can push conscious properties all the way down, right? Like let's say it's not even an emergent thing. Right. The thermostat is the simplest example. Let's just say it's a, an actual kind of, um, fundamental property, Mm -hmm. right? In in the same way, you know, that we, you know, certain versions of physics think of matter and energy as fundamental properties. If you go to quantum theory, you know, it's not even matter and energy anymore. It's wave functions and a wave function is a weird mathematical thingy, which is kind of like energy and kind of like matter and kind of like neither It, it almost like A wave function like emanates matter and energy out of it. But a quantum physics person would say, no, that thing is the real thing. And these other things that we see and experience as matter and energy are, are like actually emergent properties of wave functions. Well, what if it was sort of like that? Like, what if there's some, you know, conscious field, right. That's actually just woven right into the fabric of fundamental physics and are you is that this is a this pan, more a like, panpsychist view
1: uh what is his name Kopra Friedroff uh, I can't remember his name but there, there there's
0: there's uh there's, yeah. 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 yes. there's, yes. there's two different versions of Friedroff Kopra yes there's analytic
1: philosophy versions of si- uh, panpsychism and then there's this sort yeah. of woo um version yeah that, that's more like uh, like f- 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 verging on pseudoscience but also kind of interesting in its own way
0: yeah yeah uh i can't remember the the Tao of physics was one of the books i think copper wrote and uh, there's another one yeah very similar very similar themes i mean this is there's a there's a place i don't want to go which is you know the kind of deepak chopra no
1: right i don't either dime
0: store version where it's like look it's like it's the conscious brain that's collapsing the wave function so our minds are creating the universe and i'm like "Mm," like no, it's not the little human brain with the eyeballs. That's like creating the experience outside of itself, which is weird. I mean, I, I don't buy that at all, but I do think if you Bohm did it too, the implicate order, David Bohm, and he was a serious physicist. And, and if you read actually some of these early, like Schrodinger and, um, uh, was, I can't remember the guy that started with an E. I can't remember his name. Eddington. I think these guys were fairly mystical. These, these quantum physics and actually, Ken Wilbert edited together a book called Quantum Questions, where he took some of the most mystical passages written by- Interesting. Hardcore, yeah. And like, and like, and and Bohm is one of them. And this is a little bit in that department, or in that area where you're, you're kind of saying like, maybe, you know, maybe there is further science. Like even physicists will simply tell you like, look, we cannot reconcile Einstein's general theory of relativity with quantum physics, right? But we have had the experience, you know, you know, in the uh, Kuhn's idea of uh, scientific paradigms changing, mm-hmm. we've already had the experience of like New- the Newtonian physics worldview giving way to the, you know, Einsteinian one, where the Einsteinian one explains everything that the Newtonian one does and explains more.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's like, com- it's like a proper, you know, superset of Newtonian physics and the construct, the mathematical construct, is different than the Newtonian mathematical construct. You actually get rid of this sort of like fixed cartesian grid that is sort of built, you know, on the ether as a fixed reference point. All of Newtonian physics is based on that and it's like Einstein comes along and says guess what? That's not there, right? It it's not there and we can do better <laughs> physics if we get rid of it, which sort of it starts fucking with almost like our folk physics intuitions of like matter and space at the kind of scope and scale that we're at. But if you go if you if you take this idea that, well there's probably a further paradigm shift in physics somewhere in the future that maybe integrates quantum and Einstein yeah there are definitely some people that are like oh that's where we're going to discover the fucking consciousness field maybe or the thing that is the the fundamental thing right mm-hmm. so at this point it's not, it's not sort of like the an emergent supermind which I'll come back to in a minute it's like a fundamental supermind yeah which is already fucking there which is like, if, if you take this intuition that you could push down like like degrees of consciousness, you know, to from, from a human to a bat, to an amoeba, to a thermostat, you can actually just keep going all the way down. And now you get like, what it is like to be a quark or something or a subatomic particle. And it just has like a little conscious feature. To yeah, and it's just a, a it's more attribute. of a
1: combinatorial, a combinatorial um, set of attributes of this fundamental layer that's always there. And I think it's always there. Yeah, this is the this is the what's interesting to me about Eastern philosophy, and um, and I think um, I love that I came from the analytic sort of Anglo American tradition of of philosophy of mind, and later in life yeah. got to discover some of these ideas. I think one of the a good bridge is the dancing Wu Li masters. Um, yes, that's a great, great that's the other one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, that was one of the bridges, but then later on I started just, you know, getting into the Vedic traditions and, you know, non non-dual thinking and, um, and it, you know, I, I, I really want to caution. I mean, there's a lot that you can, that's ancient and mythopoetic and, and you really have to, to, to disentangle some of the, some of the beautiful, clear philosophical impo- insights from the mythopoetic aspects, but don't jettison them though. Cause they're going to give you exactly a mode of understanding mm-hmm. that you might not otherwise be able to, to grasp, you know, but for the intuitions, but for the intuition pumps that these, that these mythopoetic, um, m- modes of understanding provide. And I know this, it sounds yeah. like it's at odds with science, but I don't think it is. It just, it goes more to the ineffable, um, Yeah, quality of of some of these some of these things, because after all, it's our subjective states we're talking about. Right. It's it's got to do that at some at some level. And this is why I think jettisoning philosophy is about ideas as AI progresses and neuroscience progresses. But it's also important that we keep all kinds of philosophy in the mix. And Eastern philosophy is an interesting one. It goes back to Agreed. your uh, your Berkeleyan idealism and your simulation theory and and some of these you yep. know ideas of panpsychism really are like we are not separate from these phenomena. we are all a unitary consciousness. Um, we are at, that unitary consciousness is an aspect of a physical substrate that can be apprehended through different means, which yep. we might call the objective or scientific, but yep. they are still part of it and 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 so the you know mystical understanding and you know the enlightenment understanding of of buddhist monks in in um meditation and those enlightenment experiences these mysteries or paradoxes seem to collapse in on themselves to understanding um Yes. And we're chasing we're chasing a very western, very logical, very causal-oriented understanding of this where they are embracing the psychonaut. And I'm not trying to get woo with this, yes. by the way. I'm trying to say your your the mode of understanding the world world around you is it just it, as much phenomenological as it is anything else. In fact, as I said at the beginning, yes. as you said at the beginning, our entire waking lives are composed of just these properties, and we're making inferences beyond them to talk about objective phenomena through scientific means and in nature. So we have to be careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and doing that meditative practice allows you a, a mode of understanding these phenomena that that scientific stuff will never allow. And listening to the mystics and the yogis talk about non-dual reality can actually inform some of our philosophical ways of unpacking this stuff, and that's why I love it. You taught me something today, Michael Porcelli, when you said, "I think, oh yeah, yeah, that that there is a way in which the eliminativism can kind of kind of bend around and come in contact with the panpsychism." Yes, you know that. Yes, and and I think the 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 yogis give us some potential path to, to doing that, at least not understanding it and being able to articulate it in the ways that Western philosophers are familiar with and want to have, because we, 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 we love dialogue. We love sharing knowledge through language. Um, But there are other ways of having shared understanding. And it's like, try this subjective, try having this subjective experience and, meditation gives us a path to that in some way. And I don't, totally. I can't explain totally. it fully. A lot of philosophers of mine would probably poo-poo that, but I don't give a shit.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. It's, it's, um, well, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, Sam Harris is very much into meditation and tries to teach it in a kind of a secular way. I mean, in there's actually Western phenomenology. Husserl was a Western phenomenologist that mm-hmm. would do these techniques, which resembled very much kind of Buddhist or, or uh, Vedantic techniques. I think the Buddhist and Advantantik systems are way more sophisticated for doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, but in a way, it's not surprising. I just want to, you know, forward the concept in the middle of this conversation here of naturalism, which I feel like encompasses everything that we just talked about here. Yes, it, it does in a way. Like reality, one way I put it is like reality is just contiguous with itself. Right. This idea, it, whatever you want to call it, it's all interconnected right? It's all one. The one is many, the many is one, right? There's not some, there's no place where we, we could like, you know, penetrate downwards, inwards into with our microscopes or outwards further and further and, and like discover some kind of like fundamental fissure in reality, right? Even if it's the multiverse or whatever, the the various conceptualizations of the multiverse, I mean, there's still some sense in which it's like contiguous, right? If, even if you, if you take the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, like there's Okay, we can never perceive these branching parts of the wave function, but you want to know what? Like, like, They're still connected to the wave function yes. that we're inside of. That's right. right. Like, and it's, even it's, though it's, you and I can we're...
1: never share our sub- subjective states, at least we don't have any kind of understanding for how one might do that. I can't be in the Porcelli subjectivity. Uh, I can't have your window right. on the world from there in in, in San right. Diego, nor, n- nor can you have my window on the world from Austin. But it's not just the. It's not just that there is a contiguity there, but there's also a separateness. The mystics yes. speak of the illusion of separateness and the yes. and the in the unity of, and the cont- contiguity or continuity that um, right. whose features can confuse us into thinking everything is decomposable decomposable into parts. Um, yeah. And we need to do that decomposition in order to 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 make some sort of analysis or evaluation in sort of Western logical terms, telling linear stories. But we also, I, I you know, don't don't throw the phenomenology out with the bathwater. Yes. is what I heard you saying, <clears throat> we yes. can't do that. And 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 that that idea of all of us being connected to a super phenomenology um yeah. is is an interesting at least direction of inquiry and and there yeah. are multiple ways to to conduct that inquiry including meditation yeah.
0: totally and if you take this naturalistic idea we in a way it it doesn't surprise me right it doesn't surprise me of the uh, if you do follow the introspective instructions like a vedantic or a you know a Tibetan Buddhist or something. And you go like, and you do that kind of like inner space direction and you become like super fucking expert at it. Right. And you read their scriptures and you talk with the monks and you guys are meditating, you know, 12 hours a day for like, you know, 12 years or 20 years or whatever it is that they're doing. It's kind of like, oh, and then they're saying like, but yes, see this, there's this unified field of a something, something overmind and a whatever, you know, I'm simplifying, but. Then you go the other way. This is the wraparound that you weigh out the physics way. And you're like, it's just one quantum wave function, right? Like is this at this point, simply two different languages. And this is a little bit of like bringing in philosophy of language. Are these just two different languages that we're using to essentially describe the same thing, you know, in uh Western philosophy we we've called this like ne- neutral monism, sometimes it's called property dualism. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's nuances between those two things, but whatever this is, it's sort of like, Hey, it's like the elephant, right? With the, we're just touching different parts of the elephant. Right. Or like we're looking at it from a different approach, or you might say from a, a behavioral inquiry way or a pragmatist way, you could say like, look, take these actions and those actions produce an interaction with your environment that that brings forth a world, right? This is the kind of, you know, Ken Wilber will say this sometimes, right? It brings forth this world where you will see it and understand it. But but in a way, like uh, you know, the way that um you kind of get in the world of arts, like these, uh, you know, this uh this resembles that or like these kind of motifs or like echoes, right? This, this verse of the poem rhymes with that verse of the poem or, or that tune from this jingle in the commercial reminds you of this classical song from over there or whatever it is, you know, like you could see these different art movements, sometimes recapitulate previous art movements. Like what are these resemblances that are kind of there? It's like, yeah, there is some weird resemblance when you like do the frigging physics way out this way, or you do the frigging introspection way out that way. They start saying shit that sort of sounds like poetically the same. Yeah. Which is weird.
1: Yes. It's almost like uh, you know, matter and antimatter or something like that, or just or features yeah. in the universe that seem completely at odds but represent some sort of mirroring or pattern. You know, and I, I I wanna I wanna go back quickly to something you said a minute ago because I don't want to close uh without having done so. Um Great. because as as much as I want people to be psychonauts right, to explore their consciousness, and and, and particularly yeah. through meditation. And I'm a baby uh, in this regard, but I think it is so very important to do so, um, that n- neither you nor I, in this episode, we are committed to, as you put it, naturalism, uh, what 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 the, the philosophers of mine called physicalism, okay? So, talking about meditation, talking about Phenomenal states does not commit us to anything to anything that exists that is a non-physical stuff. So supernatural supernatural no supernatural right to be is to be causally effic- efficacious. Right. There is no entity that does not have some sort of causal efficacy, even if it's just acute. It's being a quantum of space time arranged in a certain way that that at least is a man to be is to be manifest in the universe in some way. And that has causal implications. Okay. Yes. So no, at no point, even when you get into the mystical, even when you get into the mythopoetic, even when you get to the noetic and the ineffable, uh, where where, you are not committing, at least I'm not committing. And I, I want, I want to ask you this question. Um, I'm not committing to the existence of spirit stuff, spookies, meta- um supernatural entities. What I'm what I'm pointing to is to the existence of something that is that is deeply mysterious, and stands in certain kind of relationship to different modes of understanding, but can exist in its totality as one phenomenon that is physical. Sure. Okay. Because, as I said, to exist, to be ontology, right, is yeah. to be physical, is to be sure. causal. Yeah. Otherwise, yep. it would be non existence. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, your thoughts on that? Are you a physicalist as well? I, I'm hearing that you are, but maybe not. I mean, an eliminativist is, a panpsychist isn't necessarily committed to metaphysical entities of a strange sort that would be non-causal
0: entities. Yeah. I mean I think you this is a great so this is great. I think you could be a, a naturalist panpsychist which is is a place I sort of have like if I have my inner eliminativist I also have my in, inner uh naturalist panpsychist and I sort of oscillate between these two things and whether they're even different I'm not even sure sometimes but like um Yes. I, you know, I, even the word physicalist is a little constraining. I think uh, it doesn't quite, I, I, that's why I like naturalism better. It's sort of physicalism kind of has this connotation that it's like built out of stuff. And I'm like, well, I mean, this could be energy. It could be, right. it could be wave functions, relational properties, or some other thing, you know? What? Yes. Okay. We're, yes, we're getting, we're getting into an interesting place with that. Yeah. And you're, you're getting a little bit ahead of me with the relational part, but. Um. Yeah, it totally. I-, I would say there's something informational and something relational. Um, and this is where, if I'm gonna like tilt into woo, this is where I would go. I mean, I- I'll just do it. A- an example from my real life, right? Like, as you know, my dad died earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Right now, before he died, I could I could imagine my dad in my mind, and I'd be like, yeah, that's dad. But like, I'm getting that that's my thought form of dad, right? Yeah, And there's the physical form of dad, right? But you know what was really trippy? After he died, suddenly the thought forms of dad got much louder. Like he appeared in my dreams much more frequently. I was like, I heard his voice in my ear more. I was remembering like his pre Alzheimer's personality a lot more vividly. And I'm like, oh, well, this is sort of like probably the experiences people had that would have them think, you know, the ghosts of their ancestors or their recently departed you know, parent is, right? That is the visitation of the ghost. What else would it be? But I'm definitely having my own, inside my own phenomenology, an experience of these things. Now, what I call those things descriptively is another sort of, you know, participation in a language game that's kind of part of a theoretical construct. I'm, I'm calling that, you know, into my modern mind, a fucking memory of my dad rather than a ghost of my dad. But sure, I think more or less phenomenologically it's pretty similar right but what is that i mean that is an information pattern in my brain that was kind of caused by the interactions inside my relationship with my dad over all the years i had that relationship with him right there's an an imprint or an impression in my neurology that is fucking dad right and it's deep in there and it's never going to go in fact it sort of it forms part of who i am right like in a way to some degree it forms part of who i am but what is that well it's, you know it's like we could think of these as kind of like information patterns of, and this is kind of getting into the nature of the self and where it actually exists. I mean, like in a way you can actually, you know, Max, you have a little inner port jelly in your mind and I have an inner max in my mind. And what does that mean? I don't know. It's, it's a, from a computer science way, it's like a data structure, right? There's an information imprint or something in here that's built out of these ways we signal back and forth. Yeah. They get
1: tagged with metadata maxness or something like that. You know, yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so in in the sense that there might be something that would is seemingly supernatural or woo, it's this idea and this kind of gets to that hardware software thing that Hofstadter and Dennett like to do where it's like, well can you peel off the information layer, right? It's a little bit, you know, c- can I look at that, you know, video file on a Mac OS or on a Windows PC? Either one, right? On a Android or like you're sort of saying like that information is essentially portable and coherent in itself in a way that is substrate independent right it, that, the only way to experience it it it's is through a physical substrate but it can appear inside of multiple physical substrates right. the video file
1: and right. that would corrupt the
0: file i think um to, to 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 trans okay so if if there's some but it doesn't corrupt what i'm saying the internet makes it so it doesn't corrupt it it stays the same Oh, see, oh gosh, how much time do we have? Do we get to talk about neural uploads? Uh, yeah, let's do it right now. But I mean, do, do you see what I'm saying about the? Yeah, let's get there. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The fucking video file can it can be re in interpreted by different hardware. That's a, that's it, it right? It's reinterpreted like video. though,
1: and that's gonna change the its sure. phenomenological character, I believe.
0: Not not to the viewer. It doesn't.
1: Okay so here okay so interestingly right check check it out okay so first of all I want to I just want to tell you that I have uh, I don't want to say my dad died too but but it but it's just so weird that you said that because I've had these same yeah. experiences almost like a religious person talking to god I talk to my dad all the time in my mind yeah. and I hear his voice yeah. and I talk to him much yeah. more than when he was when he was living in fact, I avoided calling on the phone because he got on my damn nerves, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. But now it's almost like I have this uh, um, selective editing process where I could channel my that dad module and I, and I imagine it being, yes. you know, like, okay, he's gone up and gone to heaven and now he's there's a certain level of understanding and wisdom that he has. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm idealizing my dad now as I talk to him and giving him this level of understanding yes. and patience that he didn't have in real life and and now it's almost yes. like this is how I'm processing my my dad's death. Um but anyway, I just wanted to tell you that because same kind of shit, weird. Okay, somebody needs to unpack that. I'm going to I want to look into that more offline. Um sure. but on the question of um wh- where we were going with with um all this stuff about you know emulation, like of uh, Robert Hanson's idea that you could, or Sandip Arrow yes. episode of Black Mirror, where you have these, right. you can you can take the, these, you know, I I just want to assume first of all that that these these servers they have that this is not pure code, because I don't think that there's a one to one relationship that could be f- causally that because to me I'm a, I'm a physicalist functionalist I think you have to represent faithfully the causal physical processes that extend all the way outward to a very far degree i don't know how far those extend but pretty damn far yep. right so if you have this uh experience this what we call the ex- we've been calling the experiential layer um and it is it is represented through causal physical means instantiated in some medium yep I don't see the instantiation medium being uh, a, a microprocessor, although I suppose it could be. But whatever the instantiation may, medium is, it must faithfully represent the causal physical processes. I just don't think it's plausible to think that that software code can do that. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I think that you have to have I'll fight you on this that. Point. It's got to be yeah. more neuromorphic, at least for replicating human consciousness. And whether that turns out to be microtubules or what the fuck ever, that once you are able to do that, you might have some kind of ability to um, instantiate consciousness and phenomenal properties in another medium that isn't isn't just like a human. It could be silicon based or whatever, but that that entity will have those what it's like qualities that you and I have when we're speaking to each other and experiencing each other right now. Okay. So I believe that that's not only possible, but probable in the future. Um, but I do want to, um, I do want to push back on this idea of, uh, thinking of mapping our neurophysiology as code and uploading it. Unless what that does is reactivate an instantiation medium that is capable of rendering the causal physical processes. Exactly.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a way I will agree with you and I think I will disagree with you. And but I want to just rewind to where we were because we were leaving off on like the woo part. This is where I get a little bit woo. Okay. Is um if I think of just information as a kind of a quasi-supernatural substance, right? It's I don't think of it as supernatural, but like there is a way that if you sort of like look at information theory in its purest form, the or math in its purest form, right? It's like Whatever it is, like if you're a math platonist or whatever your philosophy of math is, like whatever the fuck that shit is, is like it's like pattern per se, right? This is what it is. It's just patterns independent of any physical instantiation. Right? Like that's sort of like what they are in our mind. And we imagine them. And, and and this is a little bit why the the Pythagoreans hated irrational numbers. They were like, those can't be real. Those irrational numbers cannot be real because they can't. Be physically instantiated but maybe an irrational number is a little bit like um is is actually a, a placeholder for an algorithm that just says like give me this many digits of that irrational number and uh, you get as many as you're going to get but in order to get any meaningful usage of like an irrational number in the physical world right it, you have to instantiate it somehow which means it's like i'm going to represent pi to 150 decimal places for this thing but i can't represent it to an infinite amount of decimal places because that would suck up all the energy in the whole universe for all eternity until the heat death of the universe, and we still wouldn't get to the end of it, right? So there's a sort of way that I think that kind of puts an upper limit on the the spiritual nature, I suppose, of, of math. But I sort of said the closest thing we've got to something like this is this world of information and math. Because we can do it all kinds of places I, I, in all kinds of ways. This is
1: where uh, you you will you will woo. lose me. Okay, it's woo though. It's it, you it, know? it it seems woo to me because I just don't get it. I've never you know when you talk about postulating mathematical entities and things like that. Yeah. Um, mathematicians are so fluent and so conversant in in this stuff, and I'm terrible at math. But that is that's not, not the same as having some sort of philosophical insight. About maths, I I wonder if my lack of mathematics training um, means that I haven't been able to fully appreciate or apprehend those kinds of insights, like the the nature of uh, mathematical entities of certain sorts that they have in nature. Are they real? You know, those kind of philosophy maths questions. Sure. But I understand why you think that this could be related to the question of consciousness.
0: Yes. So. So let's just set aside, Like I'll, I'll just say, I'm not a math Platonist. I don't think that there are some quasi-actual spiritual math entities in some Platonic realm. I actually think they have to be physically instantiated, which brings me back to naturalism. But right? what like, is the thing still, that is
1: being instantiated?
0: The thing that's being instantiated is a pattern.
1: Right. So, which is where it gets pat- kind of wooed. So it gets kind of woo. Right. Pa- pattern is a set of relational properties. Is that what information is?
0: Yes. So this, you're kind of getting to my favorite thing. Like there's, um, (laughs) there's a, uh, in, in the, in the history of Western philosophy, there's this, this idea of like, what is an in inherent attribute to an object Mm -hmm. versus what is a kind of like relational attribute that it has to other objects or entities, right? It's it's the idea of essentialism versus relationalism. And there's some people in Western philosophy who sort of believe that there are are essential properties that inhere into an object or an entity that make it what it is. If you go over to the Buddhism world or you go to the relational kind of philosophical point of view in the Western philosophy, you just say, there are no intrinsic properties. There are no essences. Nothing exists besides a thing in the relations to the other things. It's the idea of like Indra's web or something like Mm -hmm. this, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, it's called a interdependent co-origination and this, is a, it's actually a doctrine in philosophy in a buddhism
1: it, it, it strikes me that this that this line of thinking could could inform the kind of simulation Berkeley and idealism stuff that's out there too it sort of it reconciles the this hard distinction between um uh information And relational properties on the one hand, causal causally efficacious entities or physical stuff on the other, because it's energetic. Right. What is energy? Energy is also a set of relationships all the way down. It is just information
0: all the way, all the way down, all the way down. And you could even say, you know, our scientific theories is sort of like, this is a philosophy of physics question. It's like, are there really quarks down there? or Are those just fucking terms in an equation that represent a relation between things? And it's like, this is like the, it's a quasi realism or quasi non realism to what is the, what is the nature of the physics equations? Right. And like at this level, I'm just like, yeah, I think they are relational. I just think it is like, we, we interacted with the universe over this long history of humanity. We wrote it down in our books and we did this sort of thing. And we, we've come up with these concepts and these concepts are information patterns that describe some kind of If you do these actions or carry out this experiment, you would get these results under these conditions. And that's it, right? There's not an actual little physics engine way down there sort of that's a real thing generating something, right? Like it's not really there. It's just probing the relational nature of reality all the way down one more layer, Mm -hmm. which is, this is where it gets wooed to me, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, it, it all has to be ultimately physically instantiated, which is the naturalism side, but whatever it is that it is, Whatever representation that it is, the math equations that Newton wrote down with his pen, right, is it's on, it's in yes. some kind of physical substrate, and it always has to be on a physical or a naturalistic substrate, including the consciousness. And this
1: is why the the you know we're always speaking about different levels of description. So it's not merely the the levels of complexity; it's also the levels of description for whatever the phenomenon is in question. And yes. this is uh, there this harkens to intertheoretic reduction, but is not intertheoretic reduction. It is, Mm -hmm. it is in the properties of complexity theory, or in in better even, perhaps, uh, integral theory of Ken Wilber, you know, talking about the relationships between wholes and parts, but also extending that rationale or extending that feeling and rationale down to um, the kinds of things that You know, Heisenberg would have appreciated, uh, you know, which is, you know, the spooky action phenomena of the universe being at some level relational properties, informational properties, and starting to think of things so far outside of the matrix of Newtonian objects or heat or radiation or these things that are one level of description that at another level of description and at another scale are more like Ah, uh, the words relational properties keep coming into my mind, but, but what would be yeah. a good example of that would just be, um, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, the words fail me. It's, 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 um, it's, it's nature is of a very, of, of something more like, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, it, it stumps me. Yeah. But I, but I, yeah. but i Some. I feel like I intuitively am picking up it. what you're getting, you're giving me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, Buddhism calls it emptiness sometimes, right? It's like all, all entities are, are devoid of intrinsic essence It's just fundamental. They only exist in relation with each other. They only have any perceptibility in relation to other things, which makes sense, right? This actually kind of brings the consciousness full circle, right? It's like, I don't know there's a max unless I'm seeing the max come through my portal, right? Like over my window, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's the interaction that gives rise to even the thought pattern that there is a an entity out there or an object out there or that it has properties at all, right? It's like the dialogue that we're carrying out or it's like the the probing of the world with our instruments of scientific discovery. And then now let's take this all the way to where we left off with the, simulation well, and it's, right it, like it's,
1: it's quick just really quickly before before we close on yeah. that because we should close and i don't want to we do i don't want to because i love <laughs> this shit it's fun but um yeah. you know the um the idea in the philosophy of science about um uh, unobservable entities right unobservable entities really push back against this baconian empiricism right mm-hmm. it's almost like you have to theorize them in order to know them Yes. Which inverts the process of philosophy in the philosophy of science in most ways, right? So, yeah, look, it's always you know, hypothesis, test the hypothesis, and so on. But, right, but with unobservable entities, or non at least as yet unobserved entities, you have to almost like have la- layers of inference, uh, that. Let's see how to explain that. You have to have a a certain level of uh, inference machines that are the sort of causal matrix of what happens in proximity to those entities in yes. order in order to be able to even indicate or ostensibly um, you know somehow uh, postulate their existence. Yes. Yeah. And then and then what yes. gets tested is are these these kind of inference systems yes it's very it's a very strange disconnected way of doing science but something like that's got to happen with consciousness too
0: this is what's happened with science like the instruments themselves are uh built out of theory right this or this concept of philosophy of science that observation is theory laden intrinsically yes it does break down whatever we want to call like the the orange meme modernist conceit about what the fuck we were doing when we were doing science, the Baconian. Mo- it's just not that what correspondence theory of truth, and we're just observing a thing. Just no, we, ne- we never are. Our eyeballs are theory laid because there's a whole science of optics that makes our eyeballs work. But we didn't know that when we started doing science 500 years ago or whatever it was. We were just looking at things, right? But then we like did so much science that we like, went like, whoa, our eyes are actually only perceiving this amount of light. They're not perceiving all of the light, right? And like, we're building these instruments and like, what the fuck is those little traces of those lines that you get? Like, this is the particle accelerator that smashed these things together. Is that, are those lines like what the particles did? And you're like, kind of, but you're like, you're actually talking about like many, many layers of an instrument that has a tiny little mini physical response. And it's just, right? Like in these detectors inside of a tube and they are all wired up to another thing. And then somebody goes, let's make a graphical representation of that. And they go like, oh, that's a graphical representation of whatever that fuck that was. Okay. What is that? Like, are you looking at what it did? No. (laughs) The instrument is itself many layers of theoretical construct in, like you said, in proximity to the, to the phenomenon. Yes.
1: And, and it's, it's almost like we have to deal with, uh, the, these net, a series of nested theories in order for science to, to, to progress in the, in exactly. these domains. So it's almost exactly. like the mathematicians yes. and the, the, the physics theorists that theory becomes the science almost as long as the inference, the matrices of inference continue to hold up. Exactly. That's the only way to do science yeah. at that point and 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 right. now we're turning the the lenses of observation and theory formation on the very mediums that we use to do that science and we're coming up yeah. in you know we're coming up with difficult mysteries that collapse into some sort of self-referential loops of of a fractal sort that that yes. that seem to just assuage the sense of mystery or deepen it in some ways that change it morph it make it a different kind of mystery um than the simply the mind body problem
0: yes it's weird shit so i mean i so the simulation thing like on the one hand i could say hey there's a video file right you could look at on your android your iphone your ipad your desktop a windows desktop whatever and the w- video file faithfully, like, gets decoded by a completely different screen and a different set of hardware and a different operating system, but it looks like the same video file. Like, this audio file is being deployed, you know, across all kinds of devices when people are listening to us, right? That's kind of cool because you can create, like, a hard barrier, right? This is like a, this is actually a, a computer science, you know, multi, it's it's operating systems theory. You can create, like, uh, you know, multi-layered hierarchical systems structures where you can kind of, like, create a layer, which essentially allows, you know, an emulation of another thing to appear. We actually call it emulation in computer science. Like, oh, you're just emulating the codec for that particular type of file on your operating system for your hardware. And the drivers take care of like making sure the little photons go to your eyes. So it looks the same or you know, vibrations go to your ear. So it looks the same. That's pretty cool, right? That is that woo information theory, right? This audio file is a hyper object, right? It's like a you know, we're talking and it exists here on our computers, but then we're going to like produce it and copy it and upload it. And it's going to, what is it? It's like this thing that sort of exists in many different times and places. If
1: that sort of, um, if there, if there's some sort of way of moving between and among levels of description and faithfully representing, uh, those, the relational properties in some information set, we can start to have really interesting experiences could have interesting experiences across subjectivities
0: and that's it, that's it we already kind of do right we already kind of do a little bit just through talking
1: yeah we're they're mediated through language through you know fucking zoom yes. and all this Signaling. stuff but it but yeah. like yeah, yeah yeah like could you take a, a you know a, some sort of layer of that information layer and even if you put the experience in the instantiation medium that is different from a from a wetware standpoint of my brain versus yours, like maybe, you know, right here where the the brainstem interacts with with all these other processes, you, you you're you able to intercept that in some way um, and um, provide me with a sub, sub, sort of subjective experiences of Porcelli on another day, even though even though yes. the, that's going to that experience is going to be filtered through my own set of beliefs and circumstances and, and otherwise, it still gives me pr- pretty special insight into, well, anyway, that's another, that's, that's, that's going off the reservation. I, I, I want to, I, I want to, you know, bring, <laughs> you want to land the I plane. I think we got to land the plane. Otherwise we're going to, we're just, we'll, we'll keep going for ages, okay. but um,
0: let, let me bring in one. I, yeah, I do want to land the plane with you, but there's something you just said there in this last piece. Of, so I got to bring in kind of the thing that I do for a living, right? I facilitate inner, you know, intersubjective communication processes. Some of these are actually very, very deep processes. Like we actually call the thing called the circling method, intersubjective meditation. But what do we do? We sit in a circle and we talk, but we don't just talk. We feel, we feel our bodies. There's actually a whole training you can do to like get yourself better at this thing. Yeah. But I do believe that there's, you know, all the information transfer we're talking about the signaling systems. I don't think it's a woo thing. I think there's actually a lot of subtle like body temperature or pheromones emanating from your skin or tiny little ways you're noticing other people glance with the whites of their eyes or whatever, you know, you maybe you see their heart beating in their, you know, in their carotid artery in their neck or something like whatever it is, or they're breathing deeper. Oh my gosh. Like you can kind of like train yourself to be like, we are here together exchanging words, but also observations. And we're feeling our bodies and our sensations almost like in a meditative state, but in a communicative meditation, not in an internal introspective meditation, but I can tell you that sometimes in those moments, really weird shit happens where somebody will go like, you know what this reminds me of? And they'll be like, blah, blah, blah. And the person over there is like, I was thinking the exact same thought. So like, are we actually sharing a subjectivity? I don't really know. But what you can do is I think you can create a kind of nexus causality. If you sync up enough signals of communication with a group of people or a pair of people or something, you can start to have something. It's probably the closest thing that I know of to a shared subjectivity. Mm, Interesting.
1: Well, you with that, you have you have persuaded me at some point. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to pop my cherry and do do some sort of uh, circling exercise to have that experience because I can I can totally imagine I was I was going to write a story one time about uh this guy who invents uh the ability to email thoughts and how then he and how the people start to get in the room and have these sort of feedback experiences that that cause us this you know uber this overbrain experience (laughs) that that yeah Yeah. uh, Yeah. it sounds very similar to that and um that you do this for a living to get people to you know bond and understand each other better is is pretty fascinating stuff so i need to conf- i need to confirm my trust into your hands at some point and let me and try it out <laughs> but man what an episode today i i i'm just <laughs> I, you know we, we get riffing like this and you realize it's this is going to be a record for the length of an episode um fuck it right i think so i fuck think it, it might be
0: yeah it's great awesome dude well Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode, an exciting episode on consciousness here on social evolution. And we will see you again or talk to you again some other time in the future, in the near future. Adios muchachos.